Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Some 2,500 local newspapers have closed in the United States since 2005, and 55 of them were in Connecticut. Researchers at the Northwestern Medill Local News Initiative have mapped out gaps in local coverage, marking news deserts across the country, including our own Tallinn County in Connecticut's quiet corner. Still, there are 20 online news organizations, 13 ethnic media outlets, and five public radio broadcasting stations filling the void where we live, including yours truly. And those researchers say they're fielding more and more calls from hopeful hopeful newcomer newspapers. One new paper recently popped up in Connecticut called The Winstead Citizen, originally linked to longtime consumer advocate Ralph Nader. We'll hear from their editor and publisher, Andy Thibault. But first, journalist Ryan Zickgraf coined the term pink slime journalism to refer to low-quality journalism disguised as local news. Ten years later, he says the problem has evolved, and he joins us now. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Catherine. What local news outlets do you rely on, or what aspects of local coverage are you looking for? Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Ryan, let's start with, can you tell us what was the story behind your coining the term um, from your stint at the startup, uh, Journatic? This was around 2012, when reports of low-cost ammonia-treated beef additive also known as pink slime beef, prompted the USDA to step in. Were you drawing on that as a metaphor? Yes. So this was, again, 10 years ago. And uh, Journatic was a company that was trying to do a new kind of local journalism where the stories were written, you know, uh, by freelance writers overseas. You know, a lot of the stories that they wrote were from the Philippines. And I was the editor so I would uh, get these stories uh, that were based in America, but were written uh, overseas. And I had to assign these writers fake bylines so they could sound American. And from there, I started myself writing. Uh, I was based in Chicago, but I was writing stories for the Houston Chronicle, um, Newsday in New York, newspapers like that. And I had never stepped foot in those states. And so... Um, I whistle. I was a whistleblower. Um, I contacted NPR actually, and um, the reason I coined "pink slime" was the CBS investigation into this sort of uh, additive, this pink slime that was added to the uh, hamburger that you would buy at the supermarket. And I found the similarity between the kind of journalism that I was doing and uh, <laughs> the pink slime you would find in your meat. I mean, that that really was a moment. I mean, I remember that coming out and you mentioned NPR. You went on This American Live to talk about 
this happening. And so can you talk about that experience? And you've also written extensively about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I talk about uh, what experience? Um, just you going on the American Live talking about this happening, and you've also written extensively about pink slime journalism. Oh, sure. So um, I initially uh, blew the whistle on Jernatic, um to a local paper. And <laughs> the funny thing is, is no one seemed to care that much. So then my next step was to go to This American Life. And uh, I almost immediately got contacted by Sarah Koenig who uh, had worked at the Baltimore Sun for years, and it was kind of right up her alley. So uh, we worked on a story together. Um, and then I wrote about my experiences for The Guardian and was interviewed by uh, newspapers all over the world. Kind of came full circle a little bit, sounds like. Uh, and I also, yeah. yeah, and I also want to mention that you recently wrote about the Mobile Current, which is one of dozens of network sites mass produced by the digital news company Metric Media since 2019, and also a part of a growing right wing propaganda project, cosplaying as a, nef- a network of nonpartisan local papers. Can you talk about that article? Yeah, so, you know, 10 years later, Pink slime is uh, uh, stronger than ever. And uh, I was sort of writing about the evolution uh, of it since um, when I first wrote about it and it was involved in it 10 years ago. Because um, what happened was this man, Brian Tapone, was our, was the CEO of Genetic. And um, after my story on This American Life came out, um, they got suspended from a lot of newspapers that were using them, including the Chicago Tribune. Uh, which owned part uh, part stake in them, and actually, Dramatic's headquarters was in the Tribune Tower in Chicago. Um, so the Tribune suspended them. All these other newspapers that were uh, buying their services suspended them, and so they went dark for a few years. And they sort of reemerged. They got rebranded, and instead of doing sort of tradition, more traditional local journalism, where you're uh, writing about. Um, you know, just local things, they started to get involved in politics. And so Pink Slime has changed a lot over the last 10 years because now there is partisan money and partisan ideology um, involved where all of a sudden you're getting a a very right wing or say a left wing slant to it. So I think whenever we have one particular label, we get other labels coming out because we're also hearing about ghost and zombie newspapers. Are they different from Pink Slime from where you're standing? Yes, because um, often when I hear those terms like zombie newspaper, uh, I think about uh, newspapers that have just been gutted and uh, can barely cover anything just because they're so short staffed. And they just uh, are kind of a shell of what they used to be. Where the thing with pink slime outlets and and, and sort of what they do is um, they disguise themselves as an actual paper. But most of them have only been around for, you know, one year, two year, uh, you know, maybe at most five years. And so they, they, they try to appear to be part of this local institution that's been around for, you know, 100 years, but they're not. You know, they may have an old timey name, um, but uh, chances are they may even have like a couple freelancers, but they don't actually have a, a real staff, you know, so they're kind of like just on the cloud almost and they're not actually based in a local community. And 
clearly there are so many factors to this, and it's been roughly 10 years since you coined the term, and and 10 years is not a long time, but just long enough for a lot of things to happen. What would you say has changed or worsened since you started it and mentioned it on This American Life? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, 10 years in the journalism world, and especially considering it's uh, moved so much online, uh, you know, things have changed uh, light years ahead. I mean, when I part of the scandal of, of my um, my whistleblowing on Dramatic 10 years ago was that um, there were these remote freelancers, you know, from overseas writing local news. And, you know, part of my problem was they're not actually going to the city council meetings and they're not sitting in the chairs and they're not talking to people in the audience. And they're not really part of the community. Well, you know, it turns out, I mean, here we are um, on Zoom. I've never been to Connecticut, but um, that's pretty standard, you know, now to, to just uh, do journalism by going on Twitter, by going on Zoom. There's just not as much in-person journalism anymore as there were 10 years ago. Um, and plus, you know, a lot of the technologies have evolved and it's so much easier to have a Pink Slime outlet uh, now than, than 10 years ago because um, the, the barrier of entry is lower. You know, now you could have AI uh, programs. You have, you know, w- what a lot of people are talking about these days with chat GPT. Uh, you can have those kind of um those kind of tools to to write stories for you. So, I mean, really anyone could could be a, a pink slime journalism outlet if they wanted to. And we know that this is not something that is new in particular, because even before the pandemic, which, you know, has exacerbated or deepened so much of this, is the fact that newspaper employment was already plummeting. You know, based on the Pew Research Center, they estimated that there has been a 57 percent drop between 2008 and 2020 in newsrooms for physical papers, while a quarter of overall newsroom employment was lost. I kind of want to get your sense of, you know, what's your what are your thoughts about that very quick and dirty journalistic approach that's happening in some well-established newsrooms as well? Yeah. Um, I think that there's some there's some bigger papers that are very healthy and can invest a lot in, in good reporting, you know, um, after 2016, you saw, uh, you know, the Washington post, the New York times, um, and like the wall street journal do pretty well, um, and have better reporting than you had in years. But, you know, uh, a lot of local outlets are cutting their print edition. Um, I'm here in Atlanta and, uh, you know, they're starting to cut their print back. Um, and there's talk that later this year, they'll, they'll cut it all together. And for smaller cities, you know, there's just no money in journalism, local journalism anymore. So a lot of them are having to do shortcuts and kind of regurgitate press releases or just not do a, a thorough job anymore. And so you're right. In, in a certain sense, a lot of smaller papers are becoming more like pink slime journalism, even though it's not quite the same thing because they do, you know, have an office in in the town. But it's not it's not good news out there for for local journalism. 
Right. And I, I've been in that space and being in a local paper as a local reporter. And you're right. There's a lot of moments where it's just incre- incredibly short staff. So it's really difficult to do, for example, what might have been a you know, several month long report out process, but is now a one day turn for a non-beat reporter with no context. I think this is what you mean by zombie newspapers. Do you mind just expanding on that? You know, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, my, my thoughts exactly on... on is, is that what you mean by zombie newspapers and how does that impact local journalism? Yeah. Um, a lot of stories, a lot of stories worth, uh, you know, when you're, when you're talking about uh, local government and, and corruption, um, a lot of these stories take a lot of time and resources to do. Um and, you know, there's been so much talk in recent years about criminal justice and um, reporting on encounters with the police. Well, the thing is, a lot of people uh, maybe don't realize it's just you can't just snap your fingers and, and, and get the real story. Um, you know, it takes it takes a lot of reporters. Uh, it takes a lot of man hours. And for a lot of newspapers, they have to make judgment calls about whether um, it's worth investing in that much. And so, you know, when you have these, say, crime reporters uh, kind of going with what the police say, well, um, part of that isn't just like, you know, ideology. It's it's easy. <laughs> you know, you make a you make a quick call to to uh, to the police station to find out what happened and to get the real story it takes a lot of time and resources that a lot of local uh, outlets just don't have the, the the resources to do. So it uh, does a disservice, I feel like, to a lot of the information ecosystem when you're not getting that full story. And so uh, there's just no easy answer for that. Right. And I mean, I know we can go for days about this, but, you know, in your opinion, what does how does this feed into a larger loss of localism? Ooh, that's a good question. Um you know, I think that and even in the last 10 years, I mean, this has been the case for probably uh, 20 or 30 years, is that um, because of the Internet and uh, other factors like that, people don't have as much connection to their local community like they did, you know, um, from when I was a kid. Uh, the local newspaper used to be one of the like pillars of of your town um that's where you would find obituaries and weddings and um your local sports to see you know what your uh friends and family have been doing and um as time has gone on those connections have loosened and uh, local newspapers ha- have have started to go away, and so have a lot of those community uh, bonds. And a lot of people, I was just uh, listening to a stat recently that ninety percent of information that people are getting are about national news. And you know, part of the problem is that a lot, increasingly, that news is partisan. It's 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 Democrat, it's Republican, it's it's conservative, it's liberal, but. You know, a lot of times in your local community, uh, the news was nonpartisan. It didn't have a partisan slant. And I worry that 
because we're focused so much more on this national news that we ourselves are becoming more partisan. Right. And I, I certainly felt that, especially when I started my career in a local paper, and that was actually when I realized how important it was to have a local reporter in the community. And as you said, you know, building those bonds. And, you know, we're talking about so many things that happened within a decade. How has all of this influenced your own career and your philosophy as a journalist? Well, I've remained committed to local journalism now because there aren't many jobs and the, and, the, and the number of jobs keeps declining. It's been hard for me to uh, stay working in it. Uh, and for instance, I was a, a housing reporter for Chicago Magazine. And then during the pandemic, I lost that job. But um, I personally have recently started uh, working for in Atlanta they're called Atlanta Civic Circle, and um, I'm a democracy reporter. And uh, it's a kind of intimidating because I'm a, I'm one person and I'm a freelancer trying to cover democracy for the entire um, area of 6 million people. Uh, but I still think it's a fight worth fighting. Uh, so here I am, still in local journalism, uh, despite so many signs that it's the wrong thing to do <laughs> as far as having a, a career I can retire in. Well, I, I hear you on that. I can't tell you how many people, when they hear that I'm a newspaper reporter, the first reaction they say is, aren't they dying? Which is not the first thing I will say to somebody who's in the industry, but hey. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, we've been talking so much about what's been happening, you know, 10 years ago, and we're here 10 years later. Do you have any updates on where is Journatic now? So, yes, um, Journatic is now Metric Media, and they've been hard to track, honestly. Thankfully, we've had some good journalism, uh, like the New York Times, Columbia Journal, uh, Journalism Review, that have kind of been tracking them. But, uh, you know, they've, they've had to do so many flowcharts because so much of this has been hidden uh, from the public. You know, newspapers are supposed to be about disclosure and... Um, uh, transparency with these pink slime um, companies have not. So they actually have thousands of websites uh, all over the country. And in fact, Brian Timponi, my old boss, has said that they're now the number one producer of local journalism in the country, which is unfortunate because, you know, they're some of the worst purveyors of local journalism in the country. Um, so they've been doing really well because they're getting political money. Uh, they're getting dark political money. And um, as you know, there's not much money in local journalism, but there's plenty of money in politics. So we're seeing right now, uh, they, they're just increasing. And in fact, I was just reading recently that in Florida, uh, a bunch of new pink slime outlets uh, are, are popping up to support uh, DeSantis. And I mean, that's sort of the perfect lead into the general question now of you know news consumers and news creators thinking about issues of trust and what's been referred to as news fatigue you know what are some tips you would offer to news consumers on the outlets that they're looking for and the information that they're looking for well i just think that um you know like maybe uh in the in the in the past 10 years people have been taking a stronger eye to see what's in their food, uh, you should also do so with your journalism and do some research. Uh, you know, it's not it's not fun, but it's necessary, I think, to 
um, see what outlets are trusted, see which ones are established. Um, don't just read a headline and or maybe a lead and then uh, pass it on and um, without, you know, trying to figure out what is good, nutritious news and, and what's not. And so I think that uh, the public needs to take their uh, news literacy uh, more seriously. Um, and I just think that is going to be bigger than ever because again, with chat GPT and a lot of these AI programs, I think it's going to be harder and harder for Americans to, to figure out uh, what is real news and what is fake news. So, um, yeah, I guess, I guess we all have homework now. We all have homework to work on our news nutrition, it sounds like. Well, journalist right. uh, Ryan Zickraff, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experience with us today. Thanks for having me on, Catherine. After the break, UConn journalism professor Amanda Crawford and Free Press senior counsel Nora Benavidez will be joining us. Plus, Andy Tibble with the recently launched Winstead Citizen. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or, finding, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're taking a look at the changing local news landscape. And joining me now is Amanda Crawford. She's a UConn assistant professor of journalism and a veteran political reporter, as well as Nora Benavides, who is a senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What local news outlets do you rely on? Or what aspects of local coverage are you looking for? Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Amanda, we just heard from journalist Ryan Zickraff about how the loss of local news has made news consumers more vulnerable to partisan propaganda. And this is something you focused on both in your time as a political reporter and now you're teaching journalism. Can you talk about your time as a political reporter? Um, or I'm, I should say, what's your response to his uh, very wide ranging concerns, especially since you have so much experience in journalism in so many different ways? 
Well, I was a local political reporter at the Baltimore Sun. Um, I covered the city of Annapolis for a long time. And then I was a state government reporter at the Arizona Republic, um, you know, based in Phoenix. And, you know, when we look at the way local government, local journalism, folk, you know, works as far as in our public discourse over um, the role of government or what we want from, you know, government and how we keep that check and balance on our, our public officials, um, you know, it's, it's the local issues like roads and schools and, you know, just our community parks and things where we've always seen, you know, communities be able to come together, right? Um, our national politics are, are so polarized. Um, and we're seeing as local news shrinks and as these kind of um, nefarious, uh, you know, outlets um, try to, you know, insert propaganda and have it masquerade as local news, we're seeing more and more of that political polarization on the national level seeping into our communities, right? We've seen it really seeping into our school boards, um, issues that you know, there's debate over whether they exist, but often issues that really aren't taking, you know, things that aren't happening in our local communities. We see them being brought into those local spaces like public school boards, this, you know, anger over critical race theory or or these national agendas, um, you know, about anti-LGBTQ issues and stuff. And we're seeing that seeping into the local areas where we used to be able to unite as communities. And I think the shrinking local news, and like I said, those nefarious practices are certainly playing into that. Well, and Nora, I want to ask, you know, with, with all this seepage from so many different wide-ranging issues that we're seeing on a national level that's getting into the local level in different ways, you know, what's your response as someone who is focused on digital civil rights? Well, thanks for having me, Catherine. Uh, you know, it's so fascinating having listened to Ryan and Amanda um, when I started tracking some of these issues in communities, it was from a civil rights angle. It was really looking at how people get to uh, the ballot box, how they engage online. And what I have come up with over the last five or six years was a recurring issue of people coming to me, uh, whether it's in trainings on civic engagement or trainings on how to spot disinformation and they've cited concerns about what are essentially growing, misleading narratives, all of which lead to erosions of public trust. And it isn't like there's one clean answer, you know, where someone can say, hey, I keep seeing these local news sites that look fake. People aren't really aware of that. As Amanda says, it's so much more nefarious. But it's been a very slow drip. People's awareness um, has grown. And I think the kind of erosion of trust has also expanded, in part because local news has declined, as Ryan mentioned. That in and of itself has given us and really kind of opened up the gates for so many various kinds of misleading information to come into people's um, you know, lexicons, news feeds, um, their various information pathways. If it weren't for the decline of local news and the erosion of people's sort of, uh, you know, general information gateways to, to news, I don't think that pink slime, and frankly, I don't think that other forms of disinformation would have flourished like they have over the last many years. Well, and then you mentioned an erosion in public trust. You know, can you touch on why is pink slime journalism such an issue, especially during election season? 
Yeah, I, I love that you bring up the the relationship to elections. You know, pink slime websites have only grown in the last several years, and they seem to um, really kind of continue to mushroom right before election periods. Many of the sites that Ryan mentioned expanded and sort of seemed to just balloon out before 2020, and again, uh, right before the 2022 midterms. Pink slime websites in the way, you know, they are kind of constructed, they have a few hallmarks. Most of the time they copy and paste press releases about local schools or city government. They use algorithmically driven uh, tools to create language patterns um, and the kinds of very short snippet stories it's basically clickbait. You know, people click on these articles um, thinking that it's from their local gazette. And what they're doing is reading a tiny bit of something that might have a kernel of truth, but it's really mostly junk. It's that kind of pink slime stuff in our ground meat. And it moves people more and more to partisan and sometimes polarized views. The problem, of course, is none of it's real. So you consume this information thinking that you're really getting something local. And the truth is Americans are consistently more trusting of local news sources than national ones. So the consumption of these horrible pink slime websites brings with it a kind of implicit trust. But the kinds of content on those websites are not trustworthy. So there is an appetite for these types of local coverages and stories, but it is then met with complete junk. Amanda, I want to bring you in real quick to talk about, you know, what what's what's your sense of well-meaning reporters who are participating in this clickbaiting? It kind of relates to what Ryan was talking about earlier, like a lot of newsrooms are short-staffed, which causes zombie newspapers, which are very different from Pink Slime. But there is a correlation in terms of not having enough people to actually go into the communities to cover these stories. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we're seeing, you know, multiple levels of of, of corrosion and erosion of, of, of local news that we're talking about here, right? You have the pink slime, this manufactured, you know, fake, you know, just garbage, right? Um, but you also have just the decline in local news where you have fewer reporters to cover more issues and more people. And, um, you know, we, we've seen for a long time, like the decline in the number of people bodies, you know, just literally people who are able to cover our city halls or cover the state legislatures around the country. Um, and so you have fewer reporters trying to do more. Um, and, and I think as, as Ryan noted earlier, and you were saying as well, you know, so much is being asked, you know, to, to generate this copy that, you know, it's, you can go onto social media, you just make a call, you know, you're just, there's, there's think, a lot of corners being cut because of that, you know, the strain on the local news resources. Well, and then relating to that with the strain with local news resources, and you still have people who want to go into this industry. You know, how do you talk about industry consolidation and teaching students? Because this is a very new and different landscape that they're entering into. Well, you know, I was thinking throughout this conversation this morning that, you know, one of the big questions that that I think is, is percolating here on the surface is, what is journalism and what is a journalist? And that relates, doesn't it, to the really huge question that our country is facing, which is, what is truth, right? And, and is there truth? <laughs> 
Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, these are the questions that I talk to my students about. Um, you know, it, it can seem idealistic, but I, I know, you know, probably all of us on this call, um, you know, who went into journalism did so because we believed that there was a, an important role of informing the public. Um, you know, that's the role of journalists, right? To um, inform, you know, the people so that they can execute their duties of, of self-governance. And so, I mean, I talk a lot about those kind of ideas, you know, in my classes. You know, the idea is that there, there, there is truth and that that is our job as journalists to seek it. Our job is not to fill inches. It's not to, you know, generate clicks. That's that's really not our job. And, and I think that that idealism is important, you know, to get back to to some extent. Um, and that that role that, you know, that journalists play, especially at the local, you know, at the local level. Longtime consumer advocate, four-time presidential candidate, and Connecticut native Ralph Nader recently helped launch the Winstead Citizen. The last weekly paper that was focused on Winstead shuttered in 2017 after more than 20 years. Joining us now to discuss the history and what's going on now is Andy Tebow. He's the editor and publisher of the Winstead Citizen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Andy. How are you doing? Good. And I just want to start by some clarification, Andy, that this area is not technically a news desert as it's covered by the Waterbury Republican American. Can you explain the impetus for this paper? Why in Winstead? Well, I just want to let you know, I went looking for the desert and then I saw Kurt Moffitt of the Waterbury paper coming out of town hall and we couldn't find the desert, but Kurt was the oasis. That's all I can say about that. We don't know anything about a news desert on the staff. And you also put out a statement to explain that you're putting out a second edition in March without promise funding. And you also said that Ralph Nader has switched gears. We know the paper is moving forward with its April issue, you know, boasting four more pages. But what can you tell us about this change of plans? Well, um, I might have to grab my dog because she's squeaking, but uh, we um, we meet every day to uh, pay as much of the back pay as we can, as rapidly as we can. And we do have a steady stream of ad and subscription revenue and donations. Uh, we got a nice donation from a guy who won't mind being mentioned, named Mallow Ford, who was with a utility company. And I just say the utility companies are smart because they pick nice guys, or at least they did with him. And, uh, you know, he came to visit us at McGrain's Diner and, you know, he's not 100, but he's getting up there. And we just have such a grassroots outpouring of support and it's it's going to show up in in our uh, next edition uh, by the quality of the writing, reporting, the aesthetics of the ads, and, and uh, we're we're a real thing. And um, Ralph had a great vision, and we're uh, going to execute that as best we can. And we've been talking about 
just to study changes or various changes really in local journalism, you had wrote in the statement that it is my duty as editor and publisher to serve our readers and staff as long as I breathe. I will without fear or favor. Our leadership team and staff continue to work eight days a week. So it looks like the AP also reported the plan was to go weekly after 2023. You know, you're still in this newsroom. You're you're their editor. You know, what are your thoughts about that plan and, oh, and well, moving yeah, forward? I just want to say that um, AP and editor and publisher asked me to confirm memos they had uh, obtained. And uh, my staff and others said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, what are we going to do when we ask somebody in town or a business or an official to confirm something that's bad? Are we going to say, well, it counts for you, but it doesn't count for us. So we're a newspaper. We have to be truthful. So I'm verifying a truthful account of, of what's going on, the good and the bad. And I believe we're I've said to others, we're the turtle that wins the race. We're slowly gaining momentum. I sold a full-page ad yesterday. I sold an ad the day before, and I sold an ad the day before that. And we've got contributors buying ads. I'm going to buy an ad. Uh, so uh, what can I say? Melanie and Rosemary are in charge of planning, and they're running the paper right now while I'm uh, – out on the street. And uh, I used to raise a lot of money for Young Writers Foundation. So I'm a little rusty, but I, I got some practice uh, for university speaker series. And um, people thought I'd leave them alone. I'm sorry. I can't do it now. But we'd appreciate your consideration to help us keep going. Well, as you dust off the rust and continue with the momentum, you know, Ralph Nader has a focus on wanting to bring back you know, newspapers and print journalism. Can you talk about any plans to build an on online presence since that's a way? Oh, yes, absolutely. We are. We're going to offer readers what they want. Some want online, some want print, some want both. Uh, so... We were able to post the pilot edition at our website, which is winsteadcitizen.org. Not too hard to find. And um, you can look at the pilot edition, which was free. And we're, you know, there's only so many of us. So, you know, I take out the garbage and I'm getting a pool table for the common area with the permission of the food co-op. And Melanie and Rosemary and, and uh, Michelle Manafia doing all the work with the reporters. If I may say, you know, the Yankees had Mantle and Maris, and we got DuPont, Deal, and Megan. Put those two up against any reporters in Connecticut. That's Liz, DuPont, Deal, Kathy, Megan. There are other great ones, but ours are more versatile. So we got a good product. We got great photographers. If you look at our photos by Bob Thiesfield of the Norfolk Library, you'll feel you're like you're in an art gallery. So, I mean, we're having a good time. 
we're stressed, you know, staff paid a price and we're going to make it right, right for them. So that's what we're doing. We've got about a minute left, but I do want to ask you to tell us about this new partnership with the CT Examiner. Oh, yeah. Well, Greg Stroud is a heck of a real nice guy, the guy who runs CT Examiner. And um, he clearly seemed to me to be a fair and even-handed guy. And um, when we were down on the canvas, he reached out his hand to help us up. So... I mean, you know, look at his site. I think it's a pretty good site, and he's got a lot of good reporters there. So we're going to help each other out. He helped us out big time, and we're going to try to do what we can to help him. Well, here's to helping each other out. Andy Chibo is the editor and publisher of The Winstead Citizen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We've been talking about how the landscape of local journalism has changed and how pink slime journalism is influencing both how news is being covered and how readers consume information. We will have more on that after a short break. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with me now to chat about local news journalism is Amanda Crawford. She's a UConn assistant professor of journalism and Nora Benavides, who's a senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press. You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Amanda, I want to start with you. You know, what's your response to the conversation about Winstead Citizen? And what does it say about the considerations of local outlets, um, what the consider- considerations that they're making when it comes to revenue streams? You know, newspapers can't get by advertisements alone, I'm assuming. Well, newspapers have never gotten by by advertising. I mean, the, well, by circulation alone has never paid the bills. Advertisements have, but certainly that's changed. Um, but, you know, when we, we look at like news ownership, right? Um, I think that we, there are a lot of things to be concerned about, but also a lot of things to recognize just kind of have, have been that way for a while. And one of those is, you know, rich people owning newspapers. <laughs> we have a long history in this country of, um, you know, people with money or people who are well known, you know, having bought newspapers um, from, you know, Will, William Randolph Hearst and certainly the Hearst newspapers here in Connecticut, um, you know, play an important role in local news, um, you know, and and we haven't, it's it's been a long time that we've had, you know, owners of newspapers as well that, you know, had political agendas. Um, you know, I, I think that the big issue here is how these things, you know, now translate into more direct propaganda where we should be concerned um, and how they, you know, are, are polluting the news stream. Um, it sounds like the Winstead, you know, it, it, newspaper is um, 
on the right track. They want to cover their local community. And we need startups like that, um, whether they are nonprofit based or whether they are fund funded by um, people who want to, um, you know, help local communities. Certainly Ralph Nader has long been a consumer advocate. Um, and so you can see how that fits into that portfolio. Well, I love that you bring that up because he wrote a book titled Only the Super Rich Can Save Us. And you <laughs> and you mentioning exactly. Hearst, Hearst as well. Um, obviously, major tycoon during his time. And we are we're still seeing his name today. This is a historical issue that you teach as well. Can you tell us about that? Sure. You know, I, I teach our press history class sometimes and we walk, you know, through the evolution of of media, you know, both how journalism evolved from extraordinarily partisan journalism. Right. And so what we've known, we knew for most of the 20th um, century, at, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, as you know, that that reliable, nonpartisan kind of, you know, journalism as the as the ideal. Right. And we've moved past that into a more partisan era again. Um, and so we also follow those you know, those those ownership patterns where, you know, you went from, you know, one local owner until two media moguls, you know, who owned, you know, really big media empires um, through the consolidation of the media where, you know, we do have a limited number of corporations that for a long time um, owned a lot of media outlets. There was a lot of good journalism that was done in that time. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say, you know, what does the future looks like, except that, it's more about what we demand from our our news outlets, the kind of coverage you want to see them have. You know, whether that's a nonprofit ownership or a corporate ownership. Um, you know, it we we the idea that it's slipping into propaganda or slipping into just straight the pink slime, you know, garbage. Um, that's what we have to be really aware of as consumers and demand better. And can you talk about the comparison between Hearst and Rupert Murdoch or even L.A. Times owner Patrick Sumshin or Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos? There's some distinction there, I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, um, we certainly with Hearst, you know, along uh, initially, you know, certainly the Hearst, Hearst uh, was uh, not a reliable um, news outlet. And there was a lot of yellow journalism and, uh, you know, salacious coverage, you know, the earliest version of clickbait, except it was selling newspapers, right? Now, we certainly saw that evolved into the Hearst newspapers, which, you know, are, are gr as a great, you know, look, you know, with lots of great local newspapers in that chain now. Um, so so we can see that evolve. So I, I think, you know, you, you certainly can see the, the pros and cons of everything. Um, Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post, you know, again, is is it great that millionaires are the ones that can save us <laughs> or corporations? You know, no. But and I, I may not trust the Washington Post to cover, you know, the issues that um, are closest to Amazon, or at least I'd consider, you know, that coverage a little more closely. Um, but I think the Washington Post does excellent journalism. And that's what we need to demand. Um, so so we, we've we have a lot a lot of you know work to be done to rebuild the infrastructure of news in this country and i think the biggest thing is making sure that it's reliable um as best as we can well nora we got about 2 minutes left but i would love your response particularly on this issue of trust and civic engagement as well well what i think we're really dancing around is this this understanding that local news robust quality local news is a public good um, when there is an absence of strong, independent local journalism, a few things happen. Usually corporate malfeasance rises, government corruption goes up, and community civic engagement goes down. 
when there is strong local news, people are more likely to vote. They are more aware of critical local issues affecting them and their livelihoods and their friends and family. This is all pointing to local news as a public good. And I think what we, at least at Free Press, try to focus on are some of the solutions. How do we right the boat, you know, turn it? And um, some of that is through developing innovative policy solutions. So I, I agree. I agree with Ryan. I agree with Amanda. It was so wonderful to hear from Andy about, you know, the work that's being done at the local level. And I just think that part of what we need is to um, reject the notion that shallow junk news is the way and the only way we are moving. Um, we need something better. And that means that readers need to begin demanding something better from themselves and from our industries, um, as well as from our policymakers. So it's it's a tall order, but we're looking at 2024, which is, may seem far away, but it is not. And we are uh, looking at dozens of elections around the world um, coming up next year. We are looking at a general election here in the U.S. I absolutely believe we will see a huge surge in pink slime websites next year, moving people politically, dividing people. And so it will be a moment, a kind of test to see if we can push for something better for readers and for communities. So I want to just take a moment and jump in that we have um, Ralph Nader on the call and just want to give him a moment to chat. Mr. Nader, are you on? Yes, I am, Catherine. Go ahead. Yes, uh, in addition to many good points Andy and others made on the program, the model of the Winston Citizen is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3. That means there are three streams of revenue, subscription, advertising, and donations. And it's designed to cover about six towns in the area. Not only Winston, the town of Winchester, Colebrook, Norfolk, Riverton, Barkhamsted, New Hartford, Heartland, and East Heartland. And the point is that anywhere around the country, if you develop that three-stream nonprofit model, weeklies can uh, sprout all over the country. There really is no excuse. Uh, the model is a, a frugal one, but one that can be community-based. The board of the Winstead Citizen is local. It's not going to be strip-mined by some large venture capital firm. And, and that's the model. And I, I want to point out that WinstonCitizen.org, look at the website, make a contribution, do a subscription if you're in the area, because if this model works, it could spread all over the country. Well, I want to thank Mr. Ralph Nader for that comment and the information. appreciate it very much. You've been listening also to Amanda Crawford, who's a UConn Assistant Professor of Journalism, and Nora Benavides, who's a Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Thank you both for your time today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.